Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Okay, welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett here, talking with a good connection after having started the show with a bad connection. And today we are going to be breaking the taboos on frank interfaith dialogue as we bring on a Catholic philosopher, a Muslim reformer, and a Christian philosopher and Logos enthusiast to discuss the war for our souls. Are we in a war for our souls? That's the title of a new essay by Thaddeus Kaczynski. Professor Thaddeus Kaczynski is a Catholic philosopher who is very much aware of the kind of red pill issues we talk about on this show. In fact, on some of them, he goes even further than I do in positing some uh, very nefarious kinds of activities by people in power. And frankly, he could be right, because if there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's never underestimate the nefariousness of what the people in power might actually be up to. We're in a war for our souls, state sorcery, pathocracy, and the traitors among us. That's a pretty strong title. So let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, Thaddeus Kaczynski. How are you? Hello, Thaddeus. Well, Thaddeus uh, may be a little bit late today. Uh, I got a message from him earlier saying he didn't think he could come on until quarter after the hour. And then I responded and said, no, we need you right away. You are scheduled for the full first hour. And he said, okay. So whatever he was uh, scheduled to do from uh, the beginning of the show through quarter after, I guess he must have gotten stuck in that. So he'll probably be here uh, very shortly. Let me lay out some of the issues we're going to talk about. Thaddeus Kaczynski talks about the way that we have been victimized by a long series of deceptions that just keep getting worse. And his interpretation is that we are in the end times, that this extreme uh, tendency of the bad guys to just lie and to feed us bigger and bigger lies and to commit ever worse outrages is a sign that the Antichrist is coming. And many, perhaps most, will worship him unto destruction and damnation. I'm quoting directly from Thaddeus's essay. The totalitarianism and wickedness will become unimaginable, resembling something worse than a synthesis of Hunger Games, Blade Runner, 1984, Brave New World, Mad Max, The Road, and The Matrix. Whoa, boy. <laughs> I don't know if I want to even watch that movie, much less actually be in it. And Thaddeus says that the Catholic Church, as well as authentic Christians and men of earnest goodwill, will be starkly divided between a small remnant faithful to the Tao and Jesus Christ, the mystical body of Christ, and the large masses of Antichrist worshippers, the mystical body of the devil, both within and without the institutional church, which will attempt both to counterfeit and destroy the remnant. Hmm. So I'll have to ask Thaddeus what he means by some of that. It's interesting that he talks about those who remain faithful to the Tao and Jesus Christ. 
So you might say that from my Muslim perspective, that synthesis of Taoism and Christianity sounds a little strange, but no, not really, because in Islam, we believe that these earlier revelations, the ones vouchsafed to Jesus, to Lao Tzu, and whoever else, were fully authentic, and we view all of these as real revelations from God, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we say, Bil Arabiya, Arabic. And so we don't really have a problem with Taoists and Christians and whoever else. And we just, of course, every religion thinks it's right. It has to. Otherwise, why be part of that religion, right? So naturally in Islam, we think that we have a more, let's say, authentically well-preserved revelation. We have the most recent and best preserved of divine revelations. And so we just say, hey, let's stick with that. And we recommend that to others as well. However, those who are practicing authentic or the, you know, the, the best they can do to follow the authentic traditional teachings of Lao Tzu through the Taoism, uh, Jesus through Christianity, and so on, hey, that's, that's fine with us. And really, ever since Islam existed, wherever Muslims were in charge, they tended to not only tolerate, but actively sort of protect and sometimes even encourage people of other religions to keep their own faiths. Now, the cynical modern scholars say, well, that's just because the people of the other religions had to pay more taxes. Yeah, maybe. Theoretically, they shouldn't have. That is, the the, the me tax on uh, non-Muslims is not supposed to be significantly more onerous than the uh, the the a- annual uh, collection of uh, the tithes, shall we say, of Islam, 2.5% of wealth and income. Uh, so normally, if Islam is being implemented correctly, people shouldn't be converting to Islam to lower their tax rate. Now, some historians think that did sometimes happen and that there were social advantages to converting to the religion of those in power and so on and so forth. But in any case, Muslim rulers very much tolerated non-Muslim subjects for the most part and often had advisors right up to their top advisors who were really the, the power behind the throne who were of other religions. And so Islam, more than most religions, has had this uh, very workable tradition of being sort of the, you know, the top dog in a multi-religious society in which the Muslim rulers protected the other religions and, to some extent, even encouraged them to be who they were. Because we do believe that these other revelations are authentic. And I think that that fact that the Islamic revelation actually has a place for the other faiths is one reason why, as we realize that the destruction of traditional religion in the modern world has been a terrible mistake, that as we return to the path of traditional religion, many will return to Islam because it is, again, the one uh, major world religion with the tradition of being uh, the custodian 
of a multi-confessional society. And I think this is one of the reasons that Guénon and the traditionalists tended to convert to Islam and practice Islam more than uh, any other religion. That is, these traditionalists believed that all of the great religious traditions are just different approaches to the same primordial truth. And so theoretically, there would be no reason why they would practice one rather than the other. However, they discovered, again, starting with Guénon, that you can't really just pick and choose from all of these different religious traditions, you know, like a lot of the New Agers do. It That ends up corrupting uh, the practice of whatever it is you're doing. And so you're better off picking one of the traditional faiths and practicing that. And so then it becomes a question of which one. And Guénot, even though he was born in a you know, French-speaking Europe and into a Christian tradition, saw that Christianity had been badly eroded by all kinds of really satanic forces. And that Islam, however, had not so much been. That there were still great, you know, large numbers of people in, in the Muslim world who were following a reasonably traditional approach to Islam. So that Islam was kind of the last major religion standing, and so Guénon converted. Again, not because that he thought Islam was the only way, just that he accepted Islam's own position, that it's the last and best preserved of the authentic revelations. And so a lot of people have uh, followed Guénon on that path. It's been the most common path of people who have rediscovered traditionalism, that is, discovered that these New Age approaches, these various approaches to spirituality that people are trying in, in the modern world, don't work unless you go back to authentic tradition. And there's really no way to do authentic tradition in a kind of pluralistic way where you're borrowing from this, that, and the other tradition. That's, by definition, not authentic. You need to pick one, practice it. And uh, So anyway, that's my take on the you know the main interfaith issue of what are we supposed to be doing here in these apparent end times as things get worse and worse as Thaddeus talks about in his article we're in a war for our souls what do we do well number one connect with an authentic tradition and practice it get out of all of these uh, whatever you know, there are so many different things going on that you could be uh, messing with and most of them are leading you on the wrong path. And I think Thaddeus basically agrees with that. Uh, that's what I'm getting out of his essay. Uh, of course, he's a Catholic, and as he says, there are a few people in the church and in the Christian world who have managed to remain authentic to the teachings of Christ as they uh, have preserved them. We Muslims would say imperfectly. <laughs> they might not agree. Uh, but there are a whole lot who haven't. And, and Thaddeus uh, faces that, uh, that terrible truth. And at some point, he's going to have to come out here and stick up for himself, or else I'm going to be warping what he says. Uh, so, But apparently he's not I'm there. I'm here. Oh, you are here. I've just been monologuing because uh, you weren't oh, here. I'm sorry. I, I've been here for about eight minutes. <laughs> oh, okay. You should, you should have, uh, like, burped or something. 
Yeah, that's all right. Uh, no, it was good. That was a good introduction. I didn't. I, I thought I didn't know if you were waiting for me to come in or you were going to invite me in. So anyway, I'm here. Well, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. Good to have you. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned in in your Skype chat that you might not make it till quarter after. So I was going to you know start shouting for you at that point. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. no, normally I can hear something when, when when the guests on the line. I hear a little background noise, but in your case, I didn't. You must have. Oh, I have it on mute. Oh, there you go. Okay, you've been listening, but on mute. Very sneaky. Anyway, you're lurking, Thaddeus. Yes. yes. <laughs> All right. So anyway, that's that was my introduction, and of course, I, it was kind of skewed a little bit to my particular, you know, Islamic traditionalist perspective. But I don't have a lot to disagree with in your essay. We're in a war for our souls. You know, maybe we're reaching the point in the end times when the people of the authentic traditions have a lot more in common with each other than they do with everybody else. Yes, um, I agree that it's, you know, on the one hand, I want to say that, you know, just like you said, for your own tradition, you think it's the truth, the most authentic, the 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 kind of um, best way to God. And I think Catholicism is. But, um, you know, that's fine. We, we have to go with what we've been shown and what our conscience tells us and and. and there, are, there is no such thing as forced faith. It has to be voluntary, and it has to come from an inspiration uh, from the Holy Spirit, in my opinion. But in terms of this end times uh, apocalypse, we're, we're now, uh, you know, right into. Um, it does seem to me that that you know those who follow God, who really do, you know them by their fruits, and those who don't even though they say they do, even though they may have official positions and external externalities that indicate that they are traditional Muslims or traditional Catholics, whatever you might say, um, their fruits really earmark them for being children of God or children of the devil. And it's becoming more and more stark and apparent. And the great separation is happening. Um, the great delusion, as mentioned in... Um, I believe it's Revelation, or it might be Thessalonians. And, um, yeah, we're in that right now. And uh, that's what I try to talk about in the, in the, in the essay. Um, and, you know, you have uh, card-carrying uh, Roman Catholics in the hierarchy, including, including in the highest office, who, by their fruits, show that they are more um, children of the devil than they are of Jesus. And then you have those who are confused about the truth about religion for whatever reason, but they seem to act and speak against these great evils in their own way. And they seem to love truth more than they do their own prestige and comfort. And to me, that's a sign of being in touch with God, regardless of the um, external indicators, you know. Yeah, I, I agree, uh, absolutely. And I, you know, I, again, since I started going after this nine eleven thing in a really serious way, I was kind of forced into it first by the very good reaction to the David Ray Griffin lecture at the University of Wisconsin that I arranged, and then when when the media decided to nominate me as the scapegoat for the nine eleven truth professors, uh, since since then, I have really noticed that the, there's a, a, a real variety of kinds of people who are willing to stick their necks out for the truth. 
and who are just going to act in the most moral and ethical way they can and and not do what most do, which is kind of shy away from anything that threatens their careers, their social standing, and, and so on. And and those people, they're not all they're not nominal Muslims or, or nominal Christians or whatever. Graham McQueen, uh, Allah Yerham, who was a Buddhist and a very uh, sincere practicing Buddhist. And he's a great example of how you don't have to be from the Middle Eastern monotheistic tradition to be acting in the way that the prophets of that tradition are telling us to act. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's interesting how, how there are so many people from so many different backgrounds and worldviews who are pretty much on board with us in standing with truth and justice. And maybe that's a sign from God that we have to open our minds a little bit and not get too attached to our own dogma. And again, I think you're you're leading the way there, Thaddeus, by you know, judging people by their fruits, as Jesus said to, and and not by sort of imposing your own theological dogma on them and saying that's the main issue is do they agree with your dogma or not? Now, I, I agree that's a lesser issue than their fruits. Well, not that I, not that I um, think that dogma isn't essential. Um, because the intellect needs to be focused and directed towards truth. One has to be integrated. So those people who, for whatever reason, are able to um, to know a lot about what's evil and what's good and to act with integrity and virtue, even heroic virtue, they would be better off if they were directed in their intellects and wills towards um, at, at least um, intellectual truth about God and morality. That's why I teach liberal arts and classical education and critical thinking and logic and metaphysics and ethics. I think those are all, you know, essential, really. But there, you know, people have to have to act and and behave with what they have, and and not everyone really has that certainty and understanding. But um, when it comes down to it, what really matters is the will uh, and the goodness of the will. That's what we judge. That's what we're judged on. Um, at our judgment day, you know, a personal judgment. And um, it's a mystery, you know, why certain people's wills are bad or good. But um, I guess what I'm thinking, I'm interested, I don't know if we could just move away a little bit from a different, to a different topic. I'm, I'm, um, I'm really interested in the way that these demonic um, crusades for evil are always couched in some kind of um, what I would say is a kind of Christian gloss. So for instance, um, you have these people in the Catholic church, um, they call themselves progressives and they even go to the catechism, right? For their supporting of pride, pride month, for instance. And they say that everyone is loved by God and um, you know, we can't make distinctions really in, in God's love and our treatment of people. We can't discriminate. And that's really what Pride Month is. It's a kind of uh, next step in the in the long enlightenment crusade against discrimination and injustice towards minorities. And the Catholic Church has always been in the forefront of promoting equal rights and human rights and human dignity. And in fact, you know, it's really a Catholic thing, okay? And 
this is this is so far from the reality of what it is and and the fact and and who's paying for it bankrolling it what agenda it really has what the effect of it is you you almost think you they can't be anything but a parody or you know like they can't be serious but they're dead serious and this to me is is a uh, indication of the antichrist religion okay when when you have uh, Christian sentiments co-opted to support what is really just the most diabolical, inhuman, cruel, uh, almost unspeakably cruel uh, activities and agenda, such as child mutilation, child sexualization, um, and sodomy, just just plain sodomy. Um, but I, I just think it's, it's um, there's no speaking to these people. But it was the same with the pandemic. Um, the same exact kind of sentiments that were being used, caring, you know, even the Bergoglio um, said that giving yourself the, the injection was an act of love of neighbor. Um, I mean, the, the, the upside downness of, of such claims and the distance from reality combined with the complete inability for anyone to talk reason to these people and convince them otherwise um i'm just wondering what do you what do you what do you think about well, that yeah, you, you know i think you're right it, it does feel sort of like a parody almost like for instance the way that the, the holy vaccine was promoted as a substitute religion uh it, it seemed almost like a parody of the eucharist didn't it yes uh, yeah and, and and to me the, it seems like you know, Rene uh, Girard, the other great Rene, you know, my, my, two of my favorite religious thinkers are Rene Guénon and Rene Girard. And once or twice since I've actually confused their last names when I mentioned them. But Girard was the Catholic who, uh, I think, made a brilliant uh, kind of apology for Christianity in his overall work on uh, scapegoating and sacrifice. And for him, the sacrifice of Jesus alayhi salam, was the ultimate sacrifice, kind of the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, because he believed that the previous, you know, all human societies up until Christianity and or Middle Eastern monotheism, let's say, uh, were based on scapegoating and ritual sacrifice. And the way they operated was the way they kept their social chaos and tensions under control was to turn on a scapegoat and lynch a scapegoat. And the scapegoat was typically an outsider, a deviant of some kind. And so, uh, according to him, in the pagan societies, people just basically unite to lie about their, their lynching of a, an innocent scapegoat as the basis of their social cohesion. And he's thought that Christianity really demolished this, uh, this whole model of society by erasing the lie, rather, by, by revealing the fact that the scapegoat that was lynched was actually innocent. You know, it was Jesus was, you know, it turns out you, the guy who lynched was actually God, according to a certain Christian view. So he, he, he thinks that the modern world, or he thought, I guess he passed away a few years ago, he thought that the modern world had gone down this very odd path of becoming more and more sympathetic to outsiders, minorities, uh, people who are typically bullied and scapegoated. And I think there's something to that. And so I think what's happened maybe is that that 
tendency that's been most markedly pushed by Christianity, but I think the whole Middle Eastern monotheistic tradition has pushed it to some extent, and it's it's there uh, to a certain degree in Islam as well, of course. But Christianity really emphasizes that uh, you know this this blows up the whole scapegoating model of social cohesion, as Gerard said, uh, and so I think that the forces of evil have picked up on this, and they've taken this sympathy for outsiders, you know, bullied people, you know, scapegoats, and used it to support the demonic. And and I think this is a problem with the Girardian, you know, Christian approach, which says that the the, the scapegoat who's being executed for his crimes is totally blameless and innocent. And then you say, wait a minute, Rene, <laughs> what's that scapegoat? You know, he's a, he's a murderer, a rapist, you know, he raped and murdered children, let's say, and we're executing him. So we're executing him and we're all in agreement that getting rid of him is the right thing to do, okay? So how are you saying that he's an innocent scapegoat? And then Rene Girard or his followers might say, well, we all have the potential of evil and sin within us. And so we're not really any more guilty or any more innocent than, than he is. We're all guilty. Yeah, that's a that's kind of a progressive secular humanist distortion, I think, of Gerard. I'm not sure if that's really the the essence of the Girardian teaching um, about what to do with criminals. I I think it's a it's a it's a it's it it it, it really manifests itself in this kind of um, fanatical concern for victims, uh, but also scapegoating the gospel um scapegoating christianity as the kind of um the the victimizer i mean that that's what's happening now is that the very kind of concern for for the marginalized and the poor um that comes out of christianity because it doesn't worship power like the pagan uh pagan mystery system occult system it was overthrown that very uh, impetus uh is being turned against uh the gospels and Christianity. And so, you know, it's interesting. I, I just, I don't know if you saw this news story. There were some, um, a group of Muslim parents, um, who kind of gathered together at a school and were very vehemently protesting the trans agenda. And they were stomping on pride flag. They had their children stomping on the flags. Uh, and, and they were chanting, um, there was Muslim women and, and, you know, in, in, covering their head and, and all that. And they were chanting, you know, protect our children as if to say, uh, our children are the victims of this and you're the victimizers, you rainbow crowd over there, you trans crowd. And then the other crowd was chanting back, protect trans children. So they're both, you know, using the idea of protecting innocent victims. Of course, the difference is the trans children there's no such thing as a trans child. It's an ideological concept. Children are becoming so-called trans because of the trans activists. That's exactly what they want. And then um, the, the the people making money off this, the the doctors and the you know um, the, the the industry, pharmaceutical industry, is really behind all this because of all the puberty blockers and the gender affirming surgeries. Um, so the children are basically uh, being confused and giving a, a certain sense of hopelessness because when you when you seduce or um, traumatize a child into thinking that they don't they don't have a gender or they don't know what their gender is that's 
that's just absolutely deeply spiritually, psychologically cruel because the child no, no longer knows what reality is. Um, I mean, it's the exact opposite of what, uh, of what authorities and parents are supposed to do. You're supposed to welcome the child into reality, help them adjust to it and to know it so a child can negotiate their way in and also to give them a sense that reality is good, has an order, it's, made of, it's ba based on love. But this is a Nietzschean nihilism which um, makes the child feel completely in vertigo. And then when they're feeling um, confused, depressed, anxious, uh, this kind of trauma causes mental disorder. Then they come and they say, we'll heal you, we'll help you. You just need to be yourself. And then, of course, it seems like they're being loving and they're being the most caring. And then the child ends up with an irreversible um, physical mutilation and they end up dying young because that's been proven. Uh, these gender, these uh, puberty blockers and the surgery causes early death. Um, and it leads them into a lifestyle of, of you know, despair, uh, exclusion from God and hopelessness. And they become just uh, foot soldiers in the ideology that becomes their religion. And I mean, that's what you're seeing now. But then you have the, the stupid, you know, Christians and Catholics d defending this whole thing. Um, and it's such a warping of, of true love and true concern for children. It's, chi it's child abuse, child molestation, and child mutilation uh, being, being portrayed as love of children. Um, I mean, there's just nothing more demonic than this. And Jesus has uh, a few words, a few strong words to say about those who uh, scandalize the children, by the way. In the Gospels, right, and of course Dostoevsky picked up on that too, and especially with that that famous uh, aphorism about how if a perfect you know utopia could be constructed at the expense of having to you know, kill one innocent child, that it would be you know horrific. You know, you, you, you can't do that, and so yeah, uh, I, I agree with, with all of that. I, th I think that there's a, a false victimization thing going on here. Where the there are these false victims, you know, people who create the image of themselves or of someone else as a victim, when they really aren't. And in fact, the perpetrators are pretending to be either victims themselves or on the side of the victims. When in fact, you know, they're the ones that are doing the evil. And, and they're also the ones who have the power now. They they've been given. They are um, what do you call it? They're privileged identities, and they're given power in the culture. And the way they're given power is by saying that they're not, they don't have any power. I mean, everything is upside down. So those who you can't, I mean, what, what about that trans, transvestite, transgender person who went and shot up the Christians? And was it a Tennessee? Um, I think so, yeah. A, a few months ago, um, you know, all the public uh, commiseration and sympathy went for the, the murderer. I mean, so, you know, what, what you're having is more and more upside down world. And um, you would think that the more it gets upside down, the more that it, people will wake up. But I don't know about that. Um, I'm not sure if that's how it's going to go. I'm not sure if that's really what the dynamic is. Um, I really don't know where it's going to go. I, I, I just see it getting more and more insane and more and more diabolically Orwellian. and um, 
it just seems to be preparing the ground for a kind of culmination of all this, which is what, you know, Christian tradition calls the Antichrist. Another, another thing I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned in this article, but I think it's Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, I forgot the chapter where Paul, St. Paul talks about there being a catacomb, a restrainer, um, and the restrainer will be lifted, which will reveal the man of lawlessness. And there's a lot of speculation, the church fathers, as to what, what this restrainer is, this catacomb. Kind of a consensus that it's something to do with Christendom, with Christian civilization, even the Pope, um, the authority of the church, which held back the pagan mystery system, the beast system, um, which was predominant, you know, uh, up until the incarnation and even after that. But eventually that was repressed. And so child sacrifice, Moloch sacrifice, this kind of uh, homosexual sodomy kind of um, fanaticism, uh, you know, the enslavement of people by leaders. These things were, you know, were put under under the under the rug in a way. I guess they never went away completely. This is the devil's. So the, the devil's reign was was subdued and really, you know, attenuated a lot. And as long as there was this, uh, the church was doing her job and there was, I, I guess you could say the same about Islam, I understand. Um, you can have a different view of this, but whatever you want to say, as long as there was a kind of uh, established uh, moral and spiritual authority, um, this system, this beast system would would be kept down. But in the end times, this catacomb will be removed and then you'll have a, the, the man of lawlessness um, it's referred to both as a he and an it. So you can look at it as a system, a structure, an institutional system or a, and a person, a, a both. And I really do think that the, to me that when when the pandemic, as soon as that happened and they started to um, disobey all the, the customary and legal infrastructure that was there to stop there from being, uh, you know, a unilateral, uh, you know, declaration of emergency where all, all the laws and all the economic rights and human rights and individual rights were just taken away that were guaranteed by state constitutions and local customs and ordinances. I knew that we were get, entering into this lawlessness. And that's really what we're seeing now. Um, it's it's really a kind of I mean it's not just think of lawlessness you think of the you know, wild west but think of like metaphysical lawlessness moral lawlessness spiritual lawlessness you don't really know what that looks like we don't know what that looks like because we're so used to it it's just there but when when that lawlessness comes uh, it's a revelation and you start to see these phenomena that we're seeing um, you know mothers not only murdering their own children for convenience, which of course is abominable and has been happening in the U S you know, since it was legalized in 73, but, and before that, of course, but, um, children, uh, parents taking their children to watch mentally and spiritually criminally insane, um, child molesters, do sexual dances in front of them and then cheering them on and wanting your child to see this. I mean, if you were to told someone even three years ago that that, that would happen, they would have laughed at you. 
But now it's... No, maybe it's five years only, ago. I think it was starting. It was already starting three years ago. Yeah, maybe you're right. Five years ago. But now, but it's become normalized. I mean, you, you have like military Antifa defending this with guns. And then you have, again, the Christians saying, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Just poo-pooing it. Um, and I mean, this is what we have. This is the lawlessness we have. And it's only going to get worse. And I don't, I don't really think there's a solution to stop the lawlessness. I just, I don't see it. Um, and so it has to sort of run its course, it seems to me. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it is a Western phenomenon, especially an American phenomenon. And I think there's a lot less of this kind of lawlessness in many other places, including Morocco, where I'm going. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when you mentioned the catacomb uh, disappearing and the man of lawlessness no longer being restrained, that is very much the same story that's told in Surah Al-Kaf of the Quran, which uh, is the su- surah that most goes into the Gog and Magog stuff, the Yajuj and Majuj in Arabic. And, yeah. And for you know, for the, in that story, it's it pretty much the same thing. The, the uh, there's a, a a wall that's been built to hold back Gog and Magog, and that that wall was constructed by uh, Vulcarnain, who is a kind of a symbol of a basically a kind of a bottom you know bottom line just ruler. And so there's a a wall to hold back the the these wild lawless. Uh, people of Gog and Magog, uh, who are threatening to come in and wreak havoc and just burn down civilization. And so then the Quran tells us that that wall will stand until the end times when it will, it will fall and these, uh, tribes, these, these wild lawless people of Gog and Magog will lay waste to civilization. So that's pretty much the same story. And I think that also does echo Jewish scripture as well, doesn't it? Um, what are you referring to in the, in the Jewish scripture, the book of Daniel, things like that? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Gog, Gog and Magog are first introduced there, aren't they? In the Torah? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. Um, no, it does. Um, I'm not sure if they had an understanding of, a, of the catacomb or not. Um, but you know, it's not just the wild, lawless, decadent, corrupt, sexually libertine and gender you know, gender bending people. It's not just that. It's not just sort of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's it's the lawlessness of a Ural, Yuval your Harari and a Klaus Schwab and a Bill Gates and Rachel Walensky and and these uh demons in human form who committed the worst crime against humanity that's ever been. And they and the Great Reset people and all that. I mean they're they're also lawlessness in an even deeper way. I mean they're luciferians right they they want to make their will be the law you know um they want to have they want to become god and they want to seduce everyone else into trying it but of course they will be ruled by these elites so yeah you have that that group of lawlessness too um but the whole thing is based on the ultimate lawlessness of rejecting the Tao, rejecting the logos rejecting the order of reality um, which was, you know, prophesized in Nietzsche. It's all there in Nietzsche, right? I mean, it's just, it's now coming to fruition. Um, so do you where, think, do you think Nietzsche was ambivalent about it? Uh, because he's sometimes been read as, you know, the, the wild mad prophet of the glory of the Superman who's coming. And, and I, 
I think he was actually more ambivalent and saw, you know, what was being lost as well as, you know, the possibilities. Well, look, he's a mixed bag in a way because he was rebelling against something that he should have rebelled against, which was the last man of the Enlightenment, the insipid, um, scientistic, bourgeois, kind of comfort-seeking, egalitarian European, uh, you know, product of a desiccated, wimpy, emasculated Christian civilization that was becoming, starting to become more industrialized and focused on um, just, just, you know, banal pleasures and comforts. And he was, he had a tragic mind and he wanted to see the glories of art and, and um, heroism. But, you know, of course, the, the salute, you know, his, his re recipe for this was to, was to basically, um, you know, exalt the human will without restraint uh, and to defy any, any kind of overarching transcendent order that could situate the will. He denied participation in something higher than the self. And so th th that's, that's the, you know, th that's the recipe for nihilism. And um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I agree. I mean, he, he probably, <laughs> he hated some things he should have hated, but his solution was worse than the problem. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I know there's a group of Muslim enthusiasts of Nietzsche in the Murabitun order. And huh. yeah, they, they find Nietzsche's critique of Christian or post-Christian civilization to be fully convincing. And they think that that ought to lead people to take a second look at Islam. Yeah, but they don't look at the other part of Nietzsche's teaching. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I said, the critique's good, you know, um, that's right. But the, the solution is just madness. It's absolute madness. It's, uh, it's the abolition of man, as C.S. Lewis calls it in his great book. Um, the rejection of the Tao, the rejection of Logos, um, it's the original sin against being. You know, um, being is a gift. We participate in it. We receive it. And we obey it. We obey reality. We, we, we contemplate it, obey it, and find our place in it. Within that obedience and surrender, there's there's room for creativity and um, and individuality and heroic activity and art and literature and creation and all that's there. But God's the boss, and um, Jesus Christ, in my opinion, is is the way. And uh, we're you know we 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 can't um, pretend that we're not an image and likeness of something higher. I mean. Plato was ultimately right. So, I mean, ultimately, Nietzsche's really rejecting Plato more than anything. Um, and and through that, he rejects any kind of participation in, in higher reality. Um, and, you know, he, he was, again, thinking that this would happen. There'd be some kind of transformation of human consciousness when once a certain amount of people, you know, figured out that they were called to lead, called to develop this, this will to power. Uh, like Marx, in a way, he was predicting a kind of future. But, you know, it's satanic, ultimately. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting how this is sort of playing out in the political world, the, the world of, uh, of ongoing events that, you know, we see sort of on a you know daily and weekly basis. Like, I certainly see it when I'm 
collecting the news stories of the week for False Flag Weekly News, which I'm uh, doing again tomorrow, that there seems to be a real uh, attention that just keeps building up, you know, between the people who are, whether sincerely or insincerely, uh, questioning or attacking the lies of the rulers, and then those who are defending those lies and becoming more and more desperate. You know, we, we've seen them resort to extreme Internet censorship, which stuff that was just unthinkable, you know, a, a decade ago, that they're now uh, throttling everybody they don't like and shadow banning everybody, that, you know, shadow banning millions of people, apparently, and actually completely shutting down all sorts of people, you know, banning people, all of this for political speech, which, you know, that was completely unthinkable not very long ago. The Internet was, you know, was believed there's this thing called net neutrality. Everybody's on the same platform. Every voice gets the same hearing. And certainly the, the people running the Internet have no more right to favor anyone or, or censor anyone than the phone company ever had to cut off your service if they don't like what you're saying on the phone. And now, of course, somehow that, that changed somewhere about around the time Trump got elected. And now, in, in the world of current events, we just see this. It seems like the, the lying uh, demonic rulers are panicking more and more and more as the truth leaks out, as the large number of people, majority really, on some of these issues. Like you were talking about the whole uh, LGBTQXYZ trans type of thing that's always in the headlines and, you know, stoking the fires of the culture war and all of that. But I think the majority is on our side on that one. You know, I think this is a, a relatively small minority that's really an enthusiastic proponent of all of these bizarre, you know, deviant beliefs and practices. And then there's a, a, another small group that's energetically resisting them. But the large middle ground of people is mostly on our side. I mean, they they look at these rainbow flag-waving weirdos and roll their eyeballs, at least the folks where I live do. <laughs> so, uh, but, but that's not the only issue. There are all these other issues as well. So, you know, we just saw Tucker Carlson do his first Twitter appearance, a 10-minute monologue in which he referenced uh, JFK truth, 9-11 truth, uh, and uh, COVID truth, and went all the way to alien truth. Now he did, a, he did a second one, by the way. No, I didn't see the second one yet. Oh, he, it's really good. Uh, he even made an allusion to Obama's uh, homosexuality. Yeah. So, so, and, and the, the the establishment is is panicking. Like, you know, they're uh, everything. You know, from like shut this guy down, and you know they're mocking him, ridiculing him, trying to marginalize him, saying he's the next Alex Jones, and so on and so forth. And there's a big op-ed in the Washington Post today about how we've got to give Tucker Carlson an off-ramp. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, and, and you know, Tucker's kind of, ch- I think, channeling the zeitgeist. You know, the zeitgeist is that folks just don't believe the BS that they're getting from these demonic rulers, and that I think is is you know that tension is just building and building and building, and it's really yeah. interesting to be right in the middle of that. Uh, so, how, how does that reflect the deeper spiritual battle? Yeah. Well, I don't know because. What are they doing about it? I mean, what is this middle group doing? What did they do during the pandemic? What did they do during 9-11? Yeah, um, yeah a lot of them reluctantly go ahead and get jabbed because it's easier to you know, keep their jobs. Well, that's jobs. the problem is that they're in a system which which requires them um, to have to go along with, the, with, with the, the false narrative and action, even if they believe it in, in private. Um, 
And so when, when are they going to realize that they can't cooperate with the system? And so I'm not sure if I have as much hope for this middle group. Uh, and I'm not sure if they can unify either. Um, they're also easily manipulated, uh, like the Trump phenomena. I mean, there are still a lot of people thinking he's the savior. Um, well, I, was, I'm uh, actually less hostile to Trump now than I ever was with uh, the, this absurd, you know, persecution of him that's going on. It, you know, I, I have no use for the guy, basically, but the people persecuting him are even worse than he is. Well, that's true. There's no doubt about that. What, what he symbolizes is much greater than what he is. And what they hate is, 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 is much worse than what he is. He's actually not as hateable as they think he is. Uh, so it's really a weird phenomena. Um, but um, I guess I'm, the thing I'm, I'm most worried about is the kind of idea that, you know, look, we have oppression by the elites. They're imposing their views on us. Um, they're not allowing us to have free speech rights. Um, we have to go back to libertarianism. We have to go back to a neutral you know, the, the normal, neutral kind of uh, American way of marketplace of ideas. So stop the censorship. OK, well, as I write about in my article, liberalism is evil. OK, the idea that you would you would want there to be a kind of empty shrine in culture and society or that there even could be. And that that's the reason we're in this mess. Um, liberalism is a kind of nascent totalitarianism. Because it's already an imposition of a um, inhuman, metaphysically and anthropologically and theologically uh, false idea of what political political order is, what culture is. As I say in the article, um, there is no such thing as a non-confessional political order. It's always going to have some sacred. I wrote about this a while back, if you remember, in that yeah. article I wrote for um, the Charlie Hebdo uh, book you, right, you put right. out. Right, right, yeah. You're, you're sort of the, the, the go-to guy for that particular idea. I think it's really important. Um, D.C. Schindler is another more uh, more um, highfalutin and rigorous uh, theologically th thinker on that. Um, he's got a great great books on this topic. Mm -hmm. he doesn't and get Peter Simpson, key. too, of course. Yes, P of course, Peter Simpson. Um but I think it's important because this libertarianism um, is not the solution. The solution is, I mean, to me, one of the reasons God is allowing this, he's allowing the satanic sacred to show its colors and to, to, to kind of unmask itself is because I think God wants to say, look, if you don't crown me as king, you know, if you don't see that I am the, the, the ruler of nations and my, you know, my truth must be obeyed, not just individually and private, but publicly and communally and corporately. In other words, um, you know, the, the job of, uh, of, of, a, of a political community is to find out what the truth is and establish it so that people can find their way to ultimate happiness, not to privatize it and, and not to act like it's um, something just relativistic. Uh, no, it must it must be publicly uh, authorized and pow all power must be exercised according to this authority and no other, because if it's not the authority of God and, 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 and his revelation. Um, it's going to be some other uh, counterfeit. 
And I, I just really think that's what one of the reasons we're, we're seeing this, because it's going to be hard to doubt that um, that this this lack of so-called, you know, lack of neutrality of the state right now, promoting all these things against the majority is the normal way of the use of political power. It's 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 if it's not ordered correctly, it's going to be ordered incorrectly. And um, so I don't know. I, I just think it's an important thing to, to, to people, people to realize. We don't want to go back to the classical liberalism as if that could be the solution. It's not going to work. Now, that poses a real problem to the United States, which, of course, was founded on classical liberalism. And I, I really agree with you and Peter Simpson that liberalism is a pretty bad uh, false religion or substitute for religion. I think it's a, a reasonably good heuristic. That is, that when you have a, a society that is sanely and healthily founded on a great religious revelation, then within that, uh, the liberal heuristic is is largely a good thing. That is, that you want to have uh, free expression as much as you can. You know, you, you generally want to err on the side of letting people argue it out and uh, express their ideas and, you know, find a way, the way to, to truth does sometimes involve uh, people starting out with views that you might disagree with. And, and so you don't want to just silence people as soon as there's an no. outcry. Uh, but, but as far as founding right. a whole uh, social order on liberalism, as you say, that there's an empty shrine there. And it, it, that means that the, the whole society is based on the idea that, that evil is on the same plane as good, <laughs> that God and the devil are on the same plane, and we give the devil all the same rights as we give to God. And the Church of Satan has all the same rights as the Catholic Church or the Islamic tradition or what have you. And uh, that's not going to work. Well, because, you know, the establishment of Catholicism, for instance, um, does not logically lead to oppression and authoritarianism, totalitarianism. In fact, in fact, the, the, the gospel is um, founded on the God's will that every single person discovers truth and loves it, um, inspired by him to do it. And what's more important is the interior purity and, and goodness than any external externality and any kind of collectivist good, any kind of materialistic, economic, um, military or political good. Nothing trumps the spiritual good of each person. And each person is loved as much as if that person only existed and there was no one else. If you have that kind of theology, anthropology, it's it's an antidote to any kind of collective totalitarianism as well as this um, you know, I isolating individualism because we're social beings. So, you know, the idea that the establishment ha having a religion as kind of authority in a po political order is inherently, you know, oppressive. That's the lie of liberalism. It's liberalism that has an anthropology that doesn't respect the dignity of the individual. It doesn't even know. <laughs> What's that? We hit the end of the hour, so we, we could we could send people to you know to to your book or to uh, to Peter Simpson's political illiberalism uh, and listen to earlier shows that I've done with you and Peter uh, to yeah. follow that thought. But right now we have to call it an hour. So hey, thank right. you so much, Thaddeus Kaczynski. Keep up the great work. Love your essay. We're in a war for our souls, and and keep up the great work on your Substack. All right, the, Kevin. The Clemmy Substack. All right, take care, McKevin. Okay. Bye. All right, bye bye. <laughs> 
right, that's Thaddeus Kaczynski back in the next hour with Muslim reformer Omar Ramahi and Christian philosopher Apollonius. Freedom Fluff.